everyone, and welcome to another live episode of Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, a special guest, or in this case, special guest, and I explore what it looks like to survive and thrive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton. I'm president of Morton Group LLC. We're a national consulting firm based here in Chicago, and we work in the areas of organizational development, research, executive placements, diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. And before we get started, I want to make sure you know that this podcast recording will be available um, late Thursday. Um, so please, if you've registered, and of course you have because you're hearing me right now, you will receive um, a notification that the podcast is ready. And of course, feel free to share it. And if you have not subscribed to Gathering Ground, uh, please do so, so you'll know whenever we have a new episode. I am very excited today uh, to have uh, three folks who I just absolutely love and adore for a variety of reasons. Um, they've made really important uh, contributions to the foundation world, to philanthropy, and to nonprofits. And so I'm happy to welcome Crossroads Fund Executive Director Jane Commando. Uh, Jane became the Executive Director of Crossroads Fund in June of uh, last year. And um, she has had an extensive international and local nonprofit experience uh, in both the Chicago and her native country, Kenya. Uh, she worked at the Chicago Foundation for Women before joining Crossroads Fund in 2005. Um, and uh, she is a, you know, just a joy to be around. We're so excited that she's now leading the Crossroads Fund. Uh, our next guest is Vule. And if you have not had an opportunity to hear, to read Lule uh, in many of his uh, unbelievable posts where he tells it like it is. And he inserts a lot of humor into the work that many of us do, whether we're in philanthropy or whether we're in nonprofits, you are missing something. So please check out Nonprofit AF. Uh, Vu is the former executive director of Rainer Valley Corps, a Seattle nonprofit that promotes social justice by developing colors of leader and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu really believes that there's ton of humor, tons of humor, I should say, in the nonprofit world, and someone needs to document it. And let me just say, I can't think of anyone else better to do it. So we want to welcome Vu as well. And we also want to welcome Michelle Morales. Michelle is the president of Woods Fund Chicago, and full disclosure, um, in one of our um, our former placements, we were very proud and happy to work with Michelle um, and uh, help in that search at Woods Fund Chicago. And she becomes the first president of the, I should say not the first president, but she becomes the president after serving as the CEO of Mikva Challenge. And Mikva Challenge was an, is an organization that leads the civic field in training teachers and developing youth councils for civic institutions. Very, very important work. Uh, Michelle's background includes alternative education, um, she was associate director of the Alternative Schools Network, and she also is a former community organizer from Humboldt Park in here in Chicago. So we are excited to welcome all of you to Gathering Ground. Hi, everyone. Hey, Jane. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Boo. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. So our, our process, our sort of format for today will be that um, we're going to talk a little bit. I have some questions to ask you, and then we're going to take as many questions as we can from our, our listeners, and there are quite a number of them. So welcome everyone who's had a chance to tune in. So Jane, I'm gonna start with you. Um, and we always like to set a little context um, at our, the beginning of our podcast for Gathering Ground. Tell us something that you've learned while you have been sheltered in place. It can be work or home related, just something 
that gives us some sense of what you've learned. Hi, everybody. And Mary, thanks so much for having me. And before I get started, I just want to wish everybody wellness, safety, and I hope you have what you need to thrive in this moment. Uh, I love people. So what I've noticed is like, I really, really, really miss my coworkers and I really miss the community that we have. Uh, even though I love my kids and I love them, <laughs> it's not the same. So that's what I've learned that I really love people and I just miss just being in community. So that's what I've learned. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, who, what have you learned? Hi everyone. Hi Mary. Thank you for having me. I learned that I touch my face a lot, which explains yeah. why I'm breaking out into stress, acne, stracne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. And Michelle, what have you learned? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for including me. Um, two things. One thing funny that I seem to have an unlimited capacity for snacking at all hours of the day. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, similarly to Jane, right? The uh, difficulty of, of keeping organizational culture alive and community alive during remote work uh, is something that I'm uh, has been kind of a, a little bit of a shock to the system and, and still trying to work through and, and really still keep a core uh, sense of core feeling with the staff and a sense of, of, of mission driven and organizational values. So that's been an interesting process. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Jane, we're going to start with you and just give our listeners a a brief synopsis of the kind of grant making that you do at Crossroads. And you started again in, in June of last year as the executive director, but you've been at Crossroads for how long before you became the executive director? So Mary and I used to work at Chicago Foundation for Women. And I always say this hustle that I have is largely to Mary. So Mary, thank you so much for connecting me to, to, uh, to a Crossroads Fund. So a little bit about Crossroads Fund. Um, we're coming up on 40 years. And one of the things that makes us different is we were actually formed on principles and policies that are now in fashion and in vogue and people aspire. So that's always a very interesting thinking that 40 years ago, it was radical for people to put money on the table and so that we want to fund the movements that we care for. And at that particular moment, the folks who started Crossroads Fund, they came from whether it was the civil rights movements, they had later on the HIV movements, the LGBTQ movements, uh, the anti-war movements, and they realized that there was no money to fund these movements. And the standing joke is there was no money then and there's no money now. And um, the act of putting money on the table to fund these movements, the question came up, if you put money on the table and you make decisions, are you giving up your power? And it became, no, you're not giving up your power. You're actually holding power. So at that particular moment, and we're talking about 40 years ago, there was a decision made that the decisions would be made by people who are closest and it has to be activist driven. Um, so we still have that. 60% of our board is activists. And Michelle is a proud board member of Crossroads Fund. So it's a little family thing that we keep going. Um, and then the other thing that came out very strongly was what is funded? And we, as we say, direct service is fantastic. We all love it. But then the systems that give rise to all the things that we care about, who funds those systems and how do we take care, make sure that those systems are are also part of that. So we actually find folks working on systems change with budgets less than 300,000 and folks working on racial, economic and, um, and social justice issues. So that's a little bit of Crossroads Fund. Wonderful. And when you think about funding systems change and advocacy work, um, can you give us some sense of how long you will 
stay with an organization. Um, I know that many um, nonprofits are concerned when they do advocacy or policy work because they have funders who think they should be able to complete something in a year, that it should only take you a year to get this done. And we want to see that report and we want to, we want to make sure you've passed that law. Um, what's been your take on that? So, you know, so one, one thing that I have to say is that most people who come to Crossroads Fund or we who work there are part of the community and are part of the issues that we think about. So I think about myself, I am an immigrant from Kenya, I'm a black woman in Chicago, and I have kids in the public school. So these issues are not separate from who we are. So when we fund, we fund using the same lens. If you think about immigration, we've been working for immigration reform for 20 years or 30 years. So it's a long-term funding. It's not one time and then like, hey, bye, good luck. No, we understand fully well that it takes long. And then the other concept that comes up is when you fund systems change, what about direct service? So we always say like, yes, 70% of your work can be direct service. Because if somebody's starving and you're like, hey, let's change this system. They're like, no, I need to eat first. So we right. said that, but then it has to be the long game. The other yeah. thing that I would add is most of our grantees have budgets less than 300,000. And last year, I want to say 60% had budgets less than 100,000. Really? When you're thinking about systems, you're like, okay, you with the 100,000, you have to be part of a larger movement to mm -hmm. make that. So we, and in terms of how long, some of the issues we fund, they're not issues that folks want to fund. So once you're in, you're in until you grow your budget to more than 300,000. So the only reason folks ask, how can you not get funded? You don't get funded if you stop doing some systems change work or if your budget goes more than 300,000 or something happens. But really, I think it's a long-term commitment. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thank yeah. you so much. So Vu, I'm gonna come to you now. Um, tell us how you are spending some of your time uh, since you left your role um, in Seattle as executive director. What's that, what's, what's that been like for you? Hi, Mary. I was hoping to get a little break when I left my ED job and, uh, and then coronavirus hit and it's just been full-time parenting. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Luckily, my partner is a uh, public school educator. Ah. Extremely helpful. But, or, but she also has a full-time job. So the two of us are just constantly parenting from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. when they go to sleep. And then 4.30 a.m. when they wake up randomly. Absolutely. So, <laughs> But, but you're, are you doing, I've seen you on some other uh, lists and you're doing some other work since you're a, a subject matter expert. Um, what other kinds of things are you doing? Well, I've been yelling a lot of foundations also. Okay, okay. Pointing <laughs> <laughs> out inequities and, and ridiculous practices in our sector, both nonprofits and foundations. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, tell us um, a, a post that you put out a couple of weeks ago. And I actually have, I don't know about anyone else, but I'm having time really, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out what day it is and time is, is very different than it used to be. However, in one of your recent posts, you used forest fires as an analogy to discuss foundations holding back on providing more than their minimum payout. Can you tell us about that post and why you decided that it was important to do that at this, this time? You, I mean, you talk about foundation, foundations all the time, but this was particularly um, timely, I would say. Yeah, well, I haven't, I'm not the only one who's been calling for the increase in payout, this 5% minimum. It should be a minimum, but it's become the maximum for a lot of foundations. So I'm, I'm really glad that foundations are stepping up and saying, no, we actually need to give out more funds because this sort of philosophy of we're saving for a rainy day, it, it just never uh, hits people that it's a rainy day. And right now there's a monsoon, right? And I use the, the analogy of the forest fire because 
we keep thinking we're going to save money for the, for the future fires, but fires spread. We don't put them out. They keep spreading. And I, I think about climate change, for example, which we have 10 years left before climate change is completely irreversible. And, and look at our political system. And I, it's been really challenging, which is why I'm really glad that Jane and Michelle are here, because I know they have lots of experience in community mobilization, advocacy, and organizing. Because if, if that had been funded years ago and gotten people to vote, uh, marginalized communities to vote, then maybe we would not be in this similar situation as we are now. So this sort of belief that we're just going to be prudent, prudent so that in the future we have funds. Well, now we have spent a lot more money in the future, but all of these to undo all the damage that's been caused because we did not spend enough funding right now to put out the existing fires. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Michelle, I'm going to come to you next. Um, give us, uh, because I definitely want you to comment on the payout piece because of yeah. course Woods Fund Chicago has just increased their payout. Thank you very much. Um, but tell us a little bit about um, the funding priorities for Woods Fund Chicago. Yes, and I'm just going to alert your audience that my dogs may be barking in the background. Um, okay, so right. we are, uh, in, some, in a lot of ways, a little bit of a sister foundation, if you will, to Crossroads Fund in that we fund many of the same organizations and the same priorities. We prioritize funding community organizing uh, and public policy advocacy in the city of Chicago. Um, and so it's been really interesting coming into the work as a former organizer and a former nonprofit leader uh, to really see honestly how many people in Chicago do not understand what community organizing is. Um, the, the, sometimes we get applications that are a little surprising to us. Um, and it's been a little bit of our mission to really uplift and elevate organizing again to make sure that uh, people understand that many of the rights that we have and many of the um, uh, liberties that we have in our city and in our nation come from community organizing, which often get demonized, right, in the mainstream media. Uh, and so we um, fund, uh, it's funny, we joke between Crossroads and Woods Fund when an organization has surpassed the $300,000 budget mark, they often get kicked up to Woods Fund. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the partnership we have with Crossroads. We fund groups of anywhere as low as $200,000 in budget and as high as 4 million uh, in budget. So we kind of have a pretty expansive portfolio. Um, so yeah. Okay, great. So Jane, I wanna come back to you. And um, as we know, many nonprofits have been very worried about fundraising, um, whether it's through foundations or their individual donors. And you have one of the largest, probably one of the most diverse events in the city every year called the um, Seeds of Change, and this year um, you did a pivot, and I thought pretty quickly, uh, to make your event, which often has over 500 folks there, is that correct? Yeah, it does. Yes, yeah. um, over 500 uh, folks attending, and you made it virtual. And I would love for you just to share how you did that. I know um, uh, Emmanuel, was, uh, your development manager, was very much a part of that, who's on. Um, but can you just talk about how you made that decision and how you did it so quickly? Um, because I think a lot of organizations are, are going to have to do the same. Yeah. So um, Seeds of Change is really a fun event. I think even we who put it together really, really, really like it. It's, um, it's grantees, it's a community, it's this one place that all the activists in Chicago are are at any one time. And this time we had decided to move to a bigger venue and then COVID happened. So mm -hmm. one of the things we said was like, okay, then what happened? 
So we decided we're going to make it one week because why not? And uh, so we pivoted to a one week virtual celebration. And this way we had everything for everybody. So the first night we had a DJ, we had a live set, and then quickly we went online uh, in, in terms of the silent auction, had that go on, and then kept the, the videos that we're going to show and did everything. I think anybody wanting to do that first has to have a communication team that's strong and very able to adapt very easily and put stuff that's of quality. Like you need everything to be aligned, to look good and to make people excited. So we had little teasers like, hey, look out for tomorrow. We have this going on. Look out for this, look at this. And meanwhile, we're keeping a, a thermometer seeing how much is being raised. Um, now looking back, would we do it a one week celebration? Maybe not, maybe three days, but mm. that was really important. So I would definitely say, have somebody who's tech savvy. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of coordination because you're not all in the same place. And mm -hmm. it's also an opportunity to bring the community together. So it's having a variety of things was great. The other thing we did, we made sure we paid all the vendors. So we paid the DJ, we paid the photographer, we paid the translation, whoever was doing the great. translations. That was great. Luckily, it was at a community college. We got our refund back. The one thing that we really, really missed was giving the award out because this was a moment also to celebrate. So I just want to celebrate like Cheryl Graves and Ara Shubes who started the Community Justice for Youth. Like really, that was great. We wanted to celebrate you and we didn't get to. So we're gonna celebrate you here again. Raise your hand for public education. These are folks who believe education is a, a right. So again, that's a group we didn't. And then the last one was the Strict Vendors Association. So they were in before the food trucks were in. And for me, what was really disappointing, all these groups have alternative ways that we're going to be looking onto after COVID is over. So that was one thing. But again, um, the spirit, the excitement, and having a tight program that everybody can just get excited over and while still raising money. And the last thing I'll add is, um, this is not, if folks have not cultivated a co-group of folks who believe in their work, this might not work. So this is years of having done this work and then coming in and telling people like, hey, let's just be together and let's just do this together. That togetherness is just the cultivation of a long period of time. So yeah, it was great. I, I agree with that. I think it's because you have this enormous following yeah. and people want Crossroads to be successful. And um, again, it's relationship building, right? And you've been building those relationships for many, many years. There's just no way around that. Um, and so, and that of course is um, part of fundraising, right? It's always about relationship building. And so if you were not relationship building prior to um, COVID-19, it's going to be to your point, difficult to make that turn now, if that's how you're going to actually uh, do your fundraising because a lot of it will have to be virtual. There's, there's no two ways about that. So Michelle, let's talk about how you and the board came to the decision to increase your, your minimum payout. Yeah, so uh, unlike Crossroads, which is a public foundation, we're a private foundation. And here we go. Here hey, go. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, our minimum, we, we set the benchmark at 6% uh, historically for our minimum payout. But 
even before, even while I was interviewing for the position for the president, I felt that that was too low. Similar to Vu, I had followed Vu even when I was in the nonprofit. I would share his blog post with my staff and so much of it resonated with us in the nonprofit sector. Uh, it was always bothersome to me that the minimum payout was 5%, but that philanthropy would act as though that was the maximum. And that within that 5% payout, the operational costs were included. So really, when you look at how much was going out for grant making, it was much less than 5%. Mm -hmm. And so I came into the Woods Fund, and I still have this mission, my board is aware, of bringing my board on a journey to increase our payout. Um, in many ways, the pandemic offers, hey, stop, <laughs> the opportunity for everyone to reimagine their practices and their, and, their, and their processes. And that's what we did. So I had actually shared one of Vu's blog posts with my board uh, and was peppering them for a couple of weeks with different blog posts from Nonprofit AF, as well as articles from Chronicles of Philanthropy and uh, the Nonprofit Quarterly um, newsletters, all around how foundations and how philanthropy needed to increase their payout. So that was kind of part of creating a little bit of a base knowledge so that we could have the discussion mm -hmm. of why we needed to not only increase our payout, but to really discuss what it meant for our grantee partner. So we wanted to ensure that we were holding firm on our usual grant making and the usual amounts that we do and not cut any amounts because of what's happening to our investment portfolio. And right. we also wanted to uh, add additional dollars. We were calling them sort of emergency funding to for grantees to be able to use during this time frame, knowing so many of their uh, revenue has been impacted by the pandemic. Um, I will just be transparent. I still feel like it's not enough. Uh, I still wish and, and wonder if I could have asked for more and if I would have gotten more. Uh, but at, at least we were able to keep intact our grant making and be able to uh, give out some emergency funding to grantees, all of which we have done without. We, we, like many other foundations, stripped away all the application process, all the reporting process, and just basically are trying to push as much capital out the door uh, this, this fiscal year. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And Boo, what's been your uh, take on how foundations are responding? Um, we have two examples here. What have you seen in other parts of the country, or particularly in Seattle, where you are? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really appreciative of Michelle and Jane's work, and I wish that more foundations would actually have that thoughtfulness and uh, that nonprofit background, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of philanthropic leaders and board trustees just do not have. Um, no, the foundations that are amazing become even more amazing, and the foundations that have become very entrenched and uh, become even more so. So, and we see this all over, you know. So it's uh, it's it's been it's been challenging, and I, I feel like we just we just don't have time for this anymore. We should never talk about restrictive funding ever again. That should just never. That's just an archaic practice that just should not even be brought up for discussion. All funding from now on needs to be general operating. And it just boggles the mind that we are still talking about, you know, not trusting nonprofits who are on the ground doing the work. If you trust them and you fund them, then let them do their work and become flexible. So I think that some foundations are really starting to understand that message. And I hope that it continues moving forward. I know that 700 foundations signed the, the pledge right. to, to become more flexible, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. But it's for 2020. It needs to extend forever from now on forever. 
Exactly. And I mean, because what we know, even at this point, is that people will be feeling the impact of COVID-19 for many, many years. This is not going away in the fall. First of all, it's really not going away in the fall. And um, the economic recovery will be years and years. Um, um, to, it will take years and years for that to actually occur. And so we have organizations um, that are in a difficult time and we have individuals. And what I was talking to a couple of my um, uh, nonprofit uh, friends about is that in some of their organizations, they have people, that staff, who are in the same position as the people they're serving. Mm -hmm. And do we really understand that we have people working in some of our organizations who are also just one paycheck away um, from really economic disaster? And keeping that in mind as well as we're doing doing that work. I see you shaking your head, Michelle. You want to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that is now the work that's ahead of even those of us that modestly increased our payout is beginning the discussion with our board of the increased payout and probably even increasing higher has to continue into 2021, 2022, and maybe even 2023. Because as we know, the after effects of this pandemic are not going to disappear once you know, we're able, once there's a vaccine or once whatever, the, the disparities that have created many of the conditions are gonna continue and now be worsened. And so we are beginning the process of uh, educating our board and having those discussions with our board around what will it mean to continue at 8% or potentially increase for not only the next upcoming fiscal year, but potentially several fiscal years after that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we know that one of the uh, funds that has been put into place, Jane, is the Technology Funders Collaborative Grant. And, and I, I think Michelle Woods Fund is part of that as well. Tell us about the Technology Funders um, Collaborative Grant. Yeah. And Mary, I'd like to pull Michelle to actually start and then I'll go on because okay. it was actually right. Michelle who organized and got us together. So I'm not, yeah, so Michelle, just go okay, for it. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's actually a grouping of, uh, funders uh, and philanthropic entities to all fund community organizing. So we were able to come together and really discuss what our shared grantee partners are struggling with during this time. Uh, and technology was resounding one of the first issues that popped up the first week to two weeks that Illinois uh, mandated shelter in place. Uh, many of the uh, grantee partners that we work with did not have the technology capacity uh, not only to organize virtually and digitally, but even for them to work from home, for yes. their staff to work from home. And so that was really the um, sort of the engine that created the, the fund that Crossroads has been managing for the, for the collaboration. Okay. And Jane? Yeah. So what I'll say, um, as we move forward after COVID, if there's ever an after COVID, what's the role of public foundations? And more and more it's becoming like, okay, this is where we come in. And, um, we fundraise, we host this collaboratives. There are a lot of work, they are, but it's not going to be, let's just me thinking or us thinking about Crossroads Fund. This is going to be maybe a model of business moving forward. Like that's a service we can offer other foundations. Like, okay, you want to do this, we can do this. But it also, what I really loved about this collaboration is that we moved really fast. Yeah. So it was within a month, we have already committed 145 and the money's out of the door. And within like six weeks, 200,000 might be out of the door. And no, nothing asked because the grantees, we knew them. They were part of the, the collaborative grantees, folks who are willing to like not have too much power play in place. It's like, yeah, we trust you. 
here's the money, do it. And then for us as Crosses Fund, because we, we're public foundations, we fundraise, we have systems in place. So it was not a very heavy lift. It's much more time consuming, but we're able to get it. So that has been very interesting, just seeing the shift and just seeing like when there's willpower and folks feel some sort of way, things can move. So That's how about correct. we have this like happen more frequently? And the one thing I keep saying, we're going to change our fee because we take 10%, that is not cutting it anymore. So there is a lot that's going on. Um, Mary, you mentioned something about how some nonprofits have some of the folks who work there having the same impact. And I kept thinking, what about us who work in foundations? Do we see ourselves being hit the same way as our grantees or the people we serve? And how does that influence or not influence the decisions we're making? So this is just something that keeps coming up. And the more closely aligned we are, then the better the decision making will be, even though we do have to acknowledge their power structures, but we're just getting the game. So this is something that's coming up uh, time and time again. And I know, Vu, you write a lot about that. So really thank you for that. And the idea, Vu, as you were saying that, um, you know, that all the things that foundations are doing now and doing on a very short time frame are things that several of us have talked about. And it's amazing when there is will, as you say, Jane, mm -hmm. look at what can happen. It's all the things that, that organizations, foundations said they couldn't do. The rapid response funds, right? These are things that actually people have just turned around. Boo, what, did you, like, what would you like to add? Well, I mean, this is like disaster funding, right? Whenever there is a exactly foundations like, oh, let's dispense with all of these formalities so we can move funding in two or three days or a week or whatever. Well, there are always these crises. That's what our sector is there. And we have to treat all the crises of kids being in cages or people, um, you know, black folks being shot at by the police with the same urgency as we treat this, these, these natural disasters or health disasters. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't. So we just like continue to intellectualize. We're just like, oh, let, let's, let's do a logic model and theory of change and spend nine months thinking about this before we deliver funding as if these issues that nonprofits have been tackling for decades are not as urgent um, as, as coronavirus or other natural disasters that have been affecting people's lives. Absolutely, and I think the, this technology collaborative is um, a great example of that because one of the things that we already knew this, but it, like many things has been exacerbated by COVID-19 is the digital divide. And when you said to your staff, go home, and by the way, you're gonna be online eight hours a day and someone had to tell you, I don't have internet service um, and that that's the reality of people's lives. And so uh, the economic impact across the board um, has been extraordinary. Um, when we think about uh, some of the numbers that we've seen about how this, um, this pandemic has impacted communities, um, I, was, I was encouraged, I would say, that um, for longer than 48 hours uh, news cycle, I actually heard about um, how it was impacting the Black community. And I think those of us who do this work, that's not surprising um, because at the base of all that is structural racism and inequity. Um, and when we think about the social determinants of health, right, where people live, where they work, where they play, yes, um, people who are already in a precarious position, all those things have been exacerbated um, throughout this uh, particular crisis. I'm curious what you are hearing from your grantees in terms of and, and what you've heard from the nonprofits you're working with as well, but what are you hearing in terms of what their needs are? And, I'm, and as I say this, I'm also just gonna let our producer, our producer know that I'm going to start um, taking some of the questions from 
our uh, listeners. Um, so what kinds of things, Michelle, Jane, will, what, Michelle, why don't you start, that you're hearing in terms from, you, from your, your grantees? Yeah, I think it's similar to what uh, many people are hearing. Uh, uh, to Jane's point, we fund groups who par predominantly do uh, community or who participate in community organizing. Many of them have had to shift to direct service, right? Uh, they have had to provide stipends to their constituency, to their uh, community members. And remember, these are small, off, small to mid-sized nonprofits whose revenue streams have already been impacted. And now they're shifting to providing stipends and, and checks and cell phones and trying to figure out cell phone plans and some sort of way to keep in contact with their community members. I mean, Jane eloquently put it, right? If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. you can't organize people who are struggling. And so they are trying to pivot to provide the direct service needs to be able to have people to organize later. Uh, at the same time, trying to make sure that the city of Chicago actually, you know, as we know, every, uh, most cities are now uh, shifting like philanthropy very quickly and undoing uh, policies that have harmed communities to try to maintain some level of humanity, if you will, in communities. Uh, so while they're doing that, they're also trying to organize virtually to be able to make sure that these policies stay intact. Um, I, I honestly am, 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 am in awe of them and don't know how they're doing it. Many of them are, uh, even to, to what Vu had laid out, Jane, they are, or um, has been laid out already, are also impacted. So many of the community leaders and the community organizers themselves are mm -hmm. impacted by COVID and are impacted by uh, the virus and, and what's happening. And so that's the predominantly thing that we're hearing as a foundation. Uh, we're also not seeing enough efforts in the city of Chicago going towards the undocumented population and of supports for the undocumented population um, and, and, we're, and, and very little to no supports for uh, individuals who participate in the informal economy who do, are not eligible for the expanded uh, services and resources in the city. Okay. And Jane, I want you to respond to that as well, but I just want to remind um, our viewers and listeners, um, to, this would be a great time if you have any questions, uh, you can certainly feel free to send those in and we will get them answered as best as we can. Jane? Just to add to what Michelle said, uh, thanks Michelle. We had a, uh, spoke to somebody who has a, uh, works in DuPage, which is uh, where a lot of the um, industries, some of them are open because they're deemed to be essential for whatever reason. And one thing that he said was really striking that some of the bigger organizations, whether it's Catholic Charities or United Way, trying to give out food or supplies was not met with the same way because people were already suspicious and they didn't have the connections. So this group coming in that is an organizer, people trust, was able to help with the distribution of food. Then the other thing that I want to really, this concept of solidarity, not charity, is really, really important, even as we do it. Because with solidarity, there's a political analysis attached to it. It's like systems have failed people, therefore we are stepping in, but not to move to the charity framework, because the charity framework doesn't challenge the status quo. So really, this is what I'm saying. And, and um, then I keep thinking, like, if all of us know folks are not able to pay rent, and there's going to be a rent strike, we who have positions of power and proximity to government, why are we not pushing that? So I mean, so those are just some of the things that keep coming up and it's okay to give food delivery, but then without a lack of a political analysis, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So just something to think about. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, can you talk a little bit about the new fund that, that is happening at the Woods, Michelle? 
Yeah, um, uh, we hopefully in the next two weeks will launch and announce our solidarity and movement building fund. Uh, this is a little bit of uh, what Jane had alluded to in terms of movement building in the city of Chicago. Um, that's happening. Many organizations and smaller community organizing groups are already working in movement building, but that is not funded. Uh, and so we are hoping to create a fund that can create space for organizations to come together to relationship build, to build solidarity, to really uh, create a shared vision for a, just, a racially just Chicago. But we know that in order to have the space to do that and the capacity to do that, you need to be compensated, you need to have the time for it, potentially you may need to have facilitation paid for a retreat. And so we're hoping with this fund that we can help to create some space in the city for organizing groups to come together to create a larger movement in the city. Um, we think and hope that it's those relationships and that solidarity building that will be cross issue, cross community, cross race. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the things that will outlast this pandemic. Uh, and that type of a movement um, is needed to be able to really push the city to embed some of the um, inequitable policies that historically it has um, committed to in, in, in communities of color in the city. Wonderful, thank you so much. And so in a, a two weeks, you think you'll be announcing that? Yes, so we just talked today. So we'll be announcing okay. it All in right. two weeks. I know, I know everybody's gonna be like with bated breath, but in two weeks we will announce it via our uh, newsletter and then post information on our website. Excellent. So um, I'm curious, you, Boo, from what you've seen uh, in your, your work in Seattle and around the country, do you get the sense that nonprofits um, uh, sort of have an, an understanding of how to access funds? Because one of the things that we saw with the, the um, what is it, the small business loans, right, that many larger organizations, companies, some that are publicly traded, had access to that money. And um, I've just seen a couple of examples where if you are a smaller group, um, you don't have someone sitting, you know, ready behind you to pull all the documents, to put everything together so that you can actually move forward and apply for this money. And so it really was, if you are, you know, if you have those kinds of people in place and you have that kind of, of um, um, operation, you can, you can actually apply for the money. In some cases I felt as though, and we don't have time, we didn't have time for this, people um, needed a navigator, similar to what we needed around um, the Affordable Care Act, right? Help people figure out what's gonna be the best package for them, the best plan. We don't have that kind of time, the money's gonna go very quickly. Um, have you seen this same kind of problem existing uh, from where you are in Seattle and around the country from the stories you've heard? Absolutely, I think this parallels what individuals are experiencing which is that people who are, most, who, are, who are most marginalized are going to be affected at every single level. So this is why we see black folks dying at greater rates of coronavirus is because of systemic racism. Right. That, and, many, and many foundations and many people in power refuse to admit and to see. And it's the same at the organizational level, which is that historically funding has been going to white mainstream organizations. Right, and less than 10% have been going to organizations led by and serving communities of color. Right. And, and this is uh, a reason, it's, it's like the Hunger Games. We have, been, we have created this Hunger Games situation where we're all just competing with services uh, for, and, and resources. And, and in the Hunger Games, it's always gonna be like the sweet kid, like Rue who dies first, the kids, you know, and that's, that's what happens. 
<laughs> at every single level of systemic injustice. And we don't, and we need to just stop being surprised at this. It's like every single time we're just like, we're, su we're surprised. We're like, wow, people of color, black folks, indigenous folks, uh, trans folks are dying at greater number. That's so surprising. Let's do a, a, a report on this. Let's study this. No, it's like this at every single level, every single time. Every single we just need to right. stop analyzing this and actually do something about that. And it comes to resources. Equity is about resources and moving right. those resources to communities that are most affected by injustice. But no, we have to go in and, and start putting all of these hoops in. It's like, oh, well, you know, we want to help you, but you know, you have to do this. You got to apply for this grant. You got to do this and you got to, you know, those are all things that, that, that advance inequity and injustice in our sector. We want to be equitable. We have to move all the hoops aside and to ensure that the resources are going to communities most affected by systemic injustice and racism. Excellent. Well, I have a question here and it's, uh, I'm going to read this to you. Um, this person says, I was surprised to see some of my foundation donors made very quick decisions to disperse funds. Yet other foundations have said, even though they would, really like to make a gift towards our emergency fund, their, in quote, structure wouldn't allow that. I'm sure many fundraisers would have faced this response. Can we hear from panelists who represent foundations to speak to this? What structure? How can they reform this? Um, let's see. If the very existence of their structure is getting in the way of their delivery of mission, foundations must change that structure and put the put their mission at the core. Well, I don't think you're going to get uh, any argument from those of us on screen who are speaking. And these are actually two foundations, I think, that are um, examples of that. One of the things that I certainly remember from being in the funding community when I was at the Chicago Foundation for Women is that funders like to listen to other funders. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering if there have been ways for you, uh, Michelle and Jane, to help influence, if you will, and encourage your colleagues to do some of the things that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one structure that I can speak to it, that probably people are saying, and that's it's code for their board of directors or their trustees, and convincing the board to uh, push more capital out the door. As, as many people I think on, the, on this podcast know, uh, what trustees tend to see themselves as are individuals who are protecting the resources of the of the foundation to be fiscally responsible. Uh, and then, you know, in these times with these, the way the market is, the, the idea is to hunker down, right? And your investment consultants and your, your uh, portfolio managers will actually encourage that process. Mm -hmm. And so we had, we hope that by, um, you know, it felt very gratuitous. So I will say that my staff was like, are we really going to put this out there, this announcement? And I said, yes, because we wanted to be declarative about it, even though, again, I want to emphasize, I still feel like it was a modest increase because the foundation world looks to things like that and they can use those things just like we used Vu's blog posts to help educate their boards. Uh, since then, there have been many foundations that have been on a collective sort of group email that have asked, how did you get your board to approve this? Right. Tell me what you, how you walk them through the process. And so that's some of the collaborative spirit and efforts in Chicago is we will often call each other and say, I saw that you did this. How did you get that to happen? How did you re We're looking to completely blow up our application process. And so I reached out to another foundation that I saw completely did away with their application process to ask how they did it. And so that's a lot of what we tend to do within the sort of the philanthropic ecosystem in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Anything to add to that, Jane, from your perspective? I'm slightly bejaded, so I don't have a, like a bright and shiny because 
we straddled both the nonprofit world because we're fundraising and we also straddled the philanthropic field. Mm -hmm. I've been in this field for close to 20 years and you'd think like, okay, you'd know it, but I also got the same response. I reapplied somewhere and got the most patronizing, annoying response. And then you sit down, you're like, okay. And this is somebody who's come up into that foundation, but for some reason has internalized some power dynamics. So if folks coming into these positions are not able or don't have no access to power, then it's difficult. The other ones could be whose money is it? So if um, mm -hmm. philanthropic dollars are maybe in some folks' uh, family or individual foundations, what do they have to lose? At the end of the day, it's a tax break or something. And if they feel they don't need to do it, and the folks who are suffering don't look like them or are not in close proximity, so I'm not sure what we do about this structure, right? So we could spend a lot of time trying to go around it, over it, and this, but unless there's this movement of like, forget the structure, forget some of this, this, and also looking for alternatives. What, what do those alternatives look like? But on the other hand, I mean, it's complicated because on the other hand, that's public money. So um, I, I don't have a, a real clear answer, but it is frustrating and um, I'm not sure. And then when I look at what we give out, really, in, in, we see our role as maybe if folks wanted to do this, use this as a model. And that's why sometimes we have to have our, our act really tight because we say like you can use it as a model and we give out maybe close to a million. But then if somebody else has access to 500 million or 50 million, why, why don't they loosen up? And what would it take to loosen up those strings? So short of a revolution, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I don't want to be too jaded. There is hope. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there is hope. And um, this, we have a question um, that is um, in relation uh, to something you've mentioned, Boo about foundations where they are entrenched and then you have more flexible foundations, you know, foundations that are, are, are progressive. Um, the, this person is curious um, and wants to hear from all of you. If they think, if you think that there are any leaders in the middle ground, and if so, what are the things that could help make, make a change for those groups um, and those leaders? People who, you know, look like they want to move to the, to the left, if you will, um, but, but really aren't quite there. Boo, anything that you would offer up? I, I would say we need to change just how we view philanthropy and the, some of the assumptions that we have internalized, right? I, I want to echo what Jane said, for example, which is like, uh, whose money is this? Well, a lot of people think, well, this is foundation's money. And we see this all the time. People saying, well, it's, their, it's these people's funding and they get to do whatever they want with it. And we just got to put up with it. Well, the reality is, again, it is a tax break, as Jane said. And so... Um, Oh, your tooth fell out. Sorry, everyone. This is oh, major. Major. That's okay. major. Yeah. <laughs> We're live. <laughs> the dogs and the, and the tooth. <laughs> that's very important. That's a that's a huge occasion. Okay. Yay. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> um, okay. So we have to get over that. It's not yes, from the money, right? And we have to get out of this. So we have a whole bunch of philosophies, these scarcity uh, philosophies that lead to the Hunger Games. This, it's other people's money. It's, it's not. People with lower income have been paying a higher tax rate uh, forever. We have a very regressive tax system. 
right. Uh, people who are who are richer are, are are saving a bunch of money from taxes. And then they put that into donor advice funds or family foundations, etc. It is not their money anymore. They're getting a tax break for for it, right? So we have to get out of that mentality. So and that that will allow us to do a bunch of stuff. Like I don't understand why family foundations. Um, I think it's a very archaic sort of system. Why do we only have family members on board of trustees? Like if we really believe this is the public's money now, then why is it only families are allowed onto family foundation uh, board of trustees? That has to change. Like, I think 90% of board of trustees are, are, are probably white and have no understanding or ex, uh, ex, lived experience of what it's like to be impoverished. And we just put up with this as like a, a normal thing. We need to stop doing that. I do think that right now people are getting very angry um, at the way things have been done and people are getting upset. And I think this is about time for us to really push and say no more. This is, it, it makes no sense that trustees don't reflect their community. It makes no sense that we think that this is other people's money. It makes no sense that people are hoarding funding like, like toilet paper when there's just so much that's going on out there. I don't even think people realize how severe this crisis is millions of people will die from starvation in the next few years millions the, the the level of global poverty and infant mortality rate and domestic violence and everything will increase significantly and over here we're all in this like kumbaya let's all like like hold hands and and we're all in this together we are not in this together no people are actively not in this together right, and right. We're, we're not gonna solve this by pretending pretending as if we are in this together what we need to do is start changing the system so that people have access to healthcare. It should be universal and they should have paid sick leave. That should be universal and legally mandated, right? And, and minimum wage should be increased. Absolutely. All of these things and our, 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 election, our elected officials need to reflect the people in their communities. And communities and foundations have to understand this, donors have to, but we've been avoiding talking about advocacy and talking about, you know, we're just terrified of, we have a disdain of, of policy and politics and funders have been actively preventing nonprofits from doing advocacy and systems change work. We don't have time for this anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and right along the lines of, of uh, your remarks, um, one of our questions um, for Jane and Michelle is, um, this person is on the board of a community organization and the organization has uh, been told by the funders that they really need to uh, pivot to direct services, um, despite the fact that the mission is around advocacy and community organizing. Um, and so what are you all telling your grantees about moving away from the core mission? Now, of course, you already fund, in most cases, um, your funding advocacy work, your funding community organizing. I don't know if you've heard any of your other colleagues talk about that with regard to saying we need direct services now, leave that advocacy work behind, of course, which is um, completely the um, sort of other side of the coin in terms of what Boo was saying. We need, the, we need the equity work more than ever. And if we don't understand that, that's a cause for concern. Michelle? Sorry, I, I, I'm not good at a poker face. Uh, I, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. All I'm, all I'm thinking to myself is, Jesus Christ, if I heard that foundation say that on one of these funder calls, I would have lost my crap. Mm -hmm. um, I just, um, it is not our job as foundations to be prescriptive. It's not our job to tell organizations what to do, how to do it, how to be, uh, I would never dare tell an organization to shift their focus or their mission. Uh, and so shame on that foundation for doing that. Um, it, you know, what, 
I know Jane's going to say this as well, our job is to listen to our grantee partners and to, you know, my viewpoint is to give them as many resources as possible so that they can do the work as effectively as they can. And so I, I'm just, <laughs> this is one of the things that Vu on his Twitter and on his blog post said, tell me all the gross things that foundations are doing and I'll shout them out. I'll shame them for you. Uh, this yeah. is one of those ones. I mean, I, I cannot, that should not happen. Hey, stop howling. Uh, in this time period, um, you're live. <laughs> and to to you know your point, obviously, while direct services might be needed, so is advocacy, so always. is organizing, always. always to ensure that racial equity and and community and marginalized communities are at the center of any of these practices and policies that are being put in place. So I'm just I'm a little dumbfounded and pissed off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for that organization yeah absolutely um jane you want to add to that and then uh, while you're thinking about that jane or adding to that um something that i was thinking about and i see we have a question about it is mutual aid and how that has been really folded in as a way to assist people um and do you think that foundations have a role in helping support um mutual aid long term so jane so, you know, if, if charity or, the, I mean, just to go back to what I said about solidarity and charity, if, if, if folks have been told, like, do charity work, which is, could be equivalent to mutual aid, because somebody doesn't have rent, so how about you use your grant to pay for rent or to give food? Yeah, because you need the person to be alive so you can organize with, right? So, uh, so this is where we had to have a long conversation in the office talking about we don't fund what we call direct service, but we, we, what does it look like? Have we replaced direct service with mutual aid to make it sound more palatable? Or are we doing that? And we're like, no, we do have to consider mutual aid as an organizing tactic. Just yeah. because it doesn't, like, all right, I was on a call, somebody says, folks are getting out of Cook County because we're calling for the release of people. Where is housing? If they have COVID, who's taking care of them? That's right. So if our support is to pay for that person to get housing, to get suffer, to get this, and that sounds like, yeah, for sure, because you need that. Or if it's an, if it's an undocumented somebody and we're doing stimulus, like give your stimulus money to this family so they can eat, that's mutual aid and it's also direct service. So I think right now it's where it's survival. So beyond survival, what does it look like? It's saying like we should never, ever be in this position again. Where, where we have to bail people out so they can leave. So, so I, I would like to imagine in all goodness at that foundation, that's what they were saying. Because if not, then we're going to be doing this work for the rest of my life. My stimulus check of 1,200 is not going to feed everybody. You know? So it, it's, it's a failure of government and systems and we're stepping in for now as we hold those systems accountable. I hope. Thank you. Um, so I have a question here from uh, someone who identifies as a woman of color. Uh, uh, she's burning out quickly, she says, as she's trying to push the folks with power to understand their power and to use it well. And so her question was, how do you, do you have any strategies uh, that nonprofit staff can use to work with, mar um, so this is a nonprofit staff with marginalized identities, and they're trying to figure out how do we push um, as she says, wealthy white trustees um, that still command the culture of philanthropy, what we've been talking about, how do we educate them about the real need? How do we, again, people are looking for ways to move their, their grant, um, 
grant-making organizations to a, to a different place? How do we really get them to understand the reality of people's lives, not something that maybe they have imagined, uh, but don't have any shared experience with and really don't understand? Are there any practical tips that we can give people in terms of this education? I'm gonna go to Boo first on this one. Hi everyone, I would probably defer to Jane and, and Michelle as women of color who've experienced way more challenges than, than I have as a man of color. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it's really challenging. And sometimes you have to deliver the same message over and over and over again. And sometimes you have to bring people from outside because we have this outsider efficacy bias but we just don't listen to people from the inside. Absolutely. But have a, have a friend pretend to be a consultant or hire a consultant um, <laughs> to come in, you know, or put on a mustache, you know, pretending you're like a different person and deliver the same message. Um, and sometimes we just, we just got to challenge things head on. And I, I do think that it is, it, I mean, we have to acknowledge that sometimes it does take risk to do this. And I know that marginalized communities and people of color and women of color are going to, you know, take the hit more when we challenge things. Absolutely. And, and we won't have time to really talk about um, what we've come to understand as the, um, as COVID-19 and, and the gender inequities, right? That women really have been providing all this care. They continue to be paid low wages. And it really is about care, care at home, um, home health care aides, uh, we, we won't be able to get into all of that, but with regard to this idea that a consultant can come in and say something that you know as a staff person, I have to say I live that all the time, and particularly around fundraising, um, but certainly around equity work as well. Um, we are going to say some of the things that you know, and I always want to say please don't be offended if we're saying exactly the same thing that you said. There's, for some reason, people really, one, they want to pay to hear someone say it, and two, it has to be someone from outside of their organization, because I think sometimes they think it's self-serving if you do it as the staff person. So just uh, for this uh, person who, who um, sent us that question, I think you do want to look for, you know, as Vu said, someone who will come in and make these points. Um, we certainly know situations where people have tried to do that work within their foundation, and it hasn't gone well for them. And certainly in nonprofit uh, organizations where people of color often feel like they're doing the heavy lift on anything related to equity. Um, when, when that is exhausting and we do it every day anyway, even if we're not at work. And so again, finding some allies who can help you get that message across, uh, it, it's gonna probably be much more beneficial than you trying to do it uh, yourself. Um, so believe it or not, we have two minutes to wrap up. I can't believe it. As I said, this goes very fast. Um, I wanna just give each of you an opportunity to make a closing comment about um, what you wish, what you hope for, um, what you hope comes out of this um, pandemic, um, because some of this movement from foundations has been positive. Um, but anything that you'd like to share with everyone before we leave, um, and Jane, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, just listen to people, they have the answers. And um, just, yeah, listen and listen deeply. That's mm -hmm. all I have, and thank you, Mary. All right, thank you. Yeah. Boo, what would you like to add? Uh, thank you, Mary, and thank you, Jane and Michelle, for having me on here. Uh, I'm just, I'm very appreciative of the nonprofits and the foundations who are really stepping up and doing things differently and challenging things that we thought were immutable. And I'm, I'm just, and I know there's just so much going on right now, and I'm, I'm just very appreciative. And I'm just, I just want to let everyone to know just to hang in there. We'll get through this and channel that anger that you have 
can change systems. Mm -hmm. And Michelle? Um, I look forward to not returning to normal. Uh, I hope that everyone on the podcast, but even, you know, what we had, I hope everyone is aware that what we had was not normal, right? Uh, and so I think we are already, um, should prepare ourselves for the gaslighting that is already starting with commercials about returning to normal, returning to a normal way of life. Even some of the things that Vu said, we're not going to return to a normal way of life and nor should we want or um, need to return to the way things were because the way things were for many communities, many people of color, many marginalized individuals was not normal. And so I hope that we use this pandemic to really reimagine uh, a more racially just and economically just city and, and hopefully United States, even though we'll see how that goes with this president, but yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I hope we use this lesson to really fight for uh, a better world. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Jane Commando, Michelle Morales and Boulay. We uh, deeply appreciate your work. We appreciate you pushing the envelope uh, at, at every opportunity. Um, we will be back and someone has just suggested that we do something on COVID and, and gender equity and maybe we'll do that as well. Uh, but thank you all for listening. Don't forget you can find Gathering Ground on uh, Apple Podcast and this podcast will be available uh, starting on Thursday. And of course, if you're listening now, you, you're registered and you will get a notification when it is available. Send us questions at mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Vanessa. And uh, thanks to all of you. And, and for the time being, we're going to stay home. Thank you all. Thank you. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.